grace and peace of Christ be with you. And also with you. Let's turn and greet one another. We welcome you to Laguna Presbyterian Church on this first Sunday of Advent, and especially if you're visiting with us, we're so glad that you're here today. There is a friendship pad that is on each pew near the center aisle, and we'd love to have you take it and fill it out and pass it down the aisle so that we know who's with us today, whether you're regularly here or whether you're a visitor. We'd still like to see your name on that pad. There is our announcement sheet that is inside the bulletin about some of the things that are happening this week and throughout the Advent season. You'll notice that our third Friday group is meeting on the second Friday for a Christmas dinner, catered Christmas dinner and musical evening. Kristen Walton in the choir, wave your hand, Kristen, that's Kristen. She teaches um, a high school choral groups in Riverside, and one of her wonderful groups is going to be here leading us in singing that evening and performing for us. The, ne- the last chance to sign up for that is next Sunday. You can sign up for that today, too. And you'll see inside all sorts of things are going on for Hospitality Night, lots of activity on this campus this coming Friday. If you've never come before, you will be amazed, and you'll also want to get here by about 4 o'clock in order to get a parking place. You, you can still sign up to help provide cookies, For the community, we serve free cookies and cider. You'll also see that we have on our campus that evening tamales and hot dogs and opportunities to sign up for Heifer Project, all sorts of things going on, a wonderful art exhibition down in our lower level, our youth center. It is quite an evening, and we end it even with singing carols in the Rose Garden with much of the community here. Also, our Christmas concert is coming up two weeks from today. Be sure you get that on your calendar. And you can be part of helping to decorate the church for Christmas by purchasing one of the poinsettias that we will use to decorate. Those are available out on the, uh, to sign up for out on the patio today. And you can do a dedication of that for someone that you love. Also, next Sunday morning, uh, Ken, Cron- Ken Cornelison is going to be telling us about his most recent trip to Africa. He visited Rwanda and Uganda and the Tumayani Children's Home. It is a place that we have not heard reports from before, Uganda and Rwanda, and we'd love to hear that next Sunday morning at 10. Everyone is invited. You'll see that there are some ways that you can participate in giving to people who are in need this Advent season. One of them is the Christmas giving tree, which is over in Tankersley Hall. You take a tag, and it suggests somebody that you bring a gift for, and you do have two weeks to be able to get those back to us. Also, there are some ways that you can help with the homeless Christmas breakfast, which will be on December 12th. Lots of things going on. Lots of possibilities. Let's turn our hearts to the Lord. Let's pray. 
you, beloved one of the Father, you come into our darkness with the brightness of your love, and we scarcely recognize you. We who yearn for your coming so easily miss your presence. We would be awake this season and this morning, alert to recognize you in all the ways that you come to us, eager to join the heights of heaven in adoring you. Amen. Join me in the responsive Advent reading that you will find in your bulletin. Advent is a time for God's people to reawaken their longings. We long for every hurt to be healed. We wait in hope for the Lord. We wait for every tear to be dried. We wait in hope for the Lord. We wait for every injustice to be made right. We wait in hope for the Lord. We celebrate God's faithfulness to his promises while we long for promises yet to unfold. We wait for hope, Lord. This morning we light the first candle which reminds us that even in the midst of darkness, the light of hope shines. Jesus Christ is the promised one of God, the light of the world. May this light of hope illumine our hearts throughout this Advent season. of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, 
and Hezron, the father of Aram, and Aram, the father of Amandab, and Amandab, the father of Nazon, and Nazon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Aziah, and Aziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of deportation of, to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Salafiel, and Salafiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah.
church, let us be seated as we continue in worship. We're going to sing the refrain again, there is a longing. Hear the call to confession. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. For the Lord is the God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. Together we confess our sins. O promised Christ, we are a world at war. Our peace depends on your coming. We are a sinful people. Our pardon depends on your coming. We are full of good intentions, but weak at keeping promises. Our only hope of doing God's will is that you should come and empower us to do it. Lord Christ, Word made flesh, our world waits for your peace, for your pardon, and for your grace. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. We lift up our personal and silent prayers of confession. 
Surely God's salvation is at hand for those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness will meet. Righteousness and peace will kiss each other. Faithfulness will spring up from the ground and righteousness will look down from the sky. The Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and will make a path for his steps. In Christ, God's salvation is at hand and righteousness has come. In Christ, we are forgiven. Thanks be to God. Amen. ornaments for my Christmas tree is a very small ceramic slipper. It's a Russian woman's uh, dressy shoe. I got it when the last time we visited Ellis Island. It is a replica of one of the shoes that one of the women who went through Ellis Island left behind, a woman who had come from Russia. When we visit New York, Ellis Island is one of my favorite places to go. It's a place where millions of people came into the United States, where they were processed as they came, immigrants, mostly from Europe, it seems. Very first year, 1892, almost a half million people came through that place, 400,000 of them, to become a part of our nation. People from England, people from Russia, people from Germany, people from so many different places. 
and Ellis has preserved some of the things that they left behind. There's luggage, there's clothing, there are toys, there are books, there are personal items like shoes, and from those items that were left behind, they've recreated some of the stories of some of those people, of what life was very likely like for them before they left home, and what their life was like as they came as immigrants to that place that was so frightening for them, and yet a place that was so very full of hope. They say that today probably 40% of us have ancestors who came through Ellis Island. The last time that we were there, I noticed that one of the things that they had added was an electronic database you could search for your own ancestors to see if they had been some of the people who had come through that place. Uh, the lines were long, and they didn't do it, and I wish that I had, because it probably will be a long time before I manage to get back there. We actually don't know if any of our family came through Ellis Island. Uh, some of you have just done a whole lot more of that genealogical-type research than I have done. In fact, Mary Reiner, who works in our office, gave me permission to tell you she's done a lot of research about her family and discovered that they were Mennonites. So she has visited some of the places in the U.S. where they lived, and just a few months ago she took a trip to Germany and Switzerland to go to the same very towns where some of her ancestors had lived. We don't know that kind of stuff so very much. What we do know is that both Dave's father and my father came from Russian Huguenots, I'm sorry, from French Huguenots who left France because of religious persecution and they came to the New World in the early 1700s. We know that Dave's uh, ancestor was actually named Anthony de Zosier and when he came to the New World, he Englished his name, is the way the records say it. it. I guess de Zosier sounded far too French to be here in the United States, so he, he called himself Sizer. He had a son who was in the Revolutionary War. He had a descendant who died in the Civil War. And Dave's mother had, is related to the great um, Scottish painter, Henry Rayburn. When we were in uh, 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 Edinburgh last year, we decided that we needed to make a side trip to be sure to see his paintings. And there's a whole section of the museum that's filled with paintings by Sir Henry Rayburn. So we were glad that we could do that. She's also related to Jim Rayburn, who founded Young Life. Some of you have history in Young Life. My mother, by the time I got around to asking her about her ancestors, she couldn't remember. In fact, she couldn't even remember her grandparents' names. Uh, the one thing that I do know is that my grandfather on that side was a cellist, and he played at least for a little while in the L.A. Phil. I like to imagine that he played in the Hollywood Bowl, but my mother couldn't remember that. When we talk about our family trees, you notice that we retell stories about the great people. We like to remember and tell about the people who were the achievers, and that's what I've just done. But that is not how my dad tells the story of our family. When you ask him about some of his ancestors, he's not terribly clear about it, but he says, well, I think some of them were cattle thieves and horse traders. I think some of them got shot, and some of them ended up with the Indians. And then he always says, and then there was great Aunt Hattie, 
She died of syphilis. I think she was a madam. Well, you know, you just can't choose your ancestors. And you can't choose your family either. In ancient cultures, people would have been able to recite their ancestors like that long list that Jerry read this morning. People would be able to identify themselves when they met you by listing their ancestors from memory, of course. In fact, maybe even Jesus was able to do that when he was a child. Who knows? Matthew starts his gospel with that long list. It is Jesus' pedigree. It is the people that he came from. It's what we've come to expect from Matthew, who we know takes from the old and then interprets the new because of the old. He takes from the Old Testament, talks about the promises that are in the Old Testament, and he connects them with Jesus himself. We heard that whole genealogy earlier, stretching all the way from Abraham to Jesus. It's sort of a thumbnail of the Old Testament, and most of them are names that we don't recognize at all. Today, the part of it that we are going to look at is the very first few verses. Matthew 1, beginning with verse 1. Account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Any first-century Jew would find this to be a very impressive list, even though you probably don't. Only a few Jews at the time could trace their own heritage clear back to King David. Like most genealogies, it doesn't list every ancestor. In fact, Matthew has chosen which ones to include. He's trying to shape this genealogy in order to tell us a message, to tell us something about Jesus. Right at the very beginning, he lists the most impressive of the ancestors, you notice, even out of order. He lists Abraham, and then right away, he talks about King David. Abraham, the founding father of the Hebrew people, whom God called to follow him to a new land, to whom God promised, I will be your God, and you will be my people, and through you, all the world will be blessed. That long wait that we've talked about so many times of Abraham and Sarah to have even the first child, much less to see anybody through whom all the world would be blessed. And David, the shepherd, the psalmist, the great king, God's promise to him that somebody in David's line would sit on the throne forever. To these two lines of promise running together in this story, the promise that all the world would be blessed, and the promise of a king who would be forever coming together after centuries and centuries of people longing and waiting and trying to see where these promises would possibly show themselves to come true. To a first century Jew, reading a genealogy like this would be like a fanfare. It would be announcing that it has finally happened, that the answer to these promises has come. God's anointed, his long-awaited Messiah is here in this list of people, the last one, Jesus himself. Now, ancient genealogies like to boast about impressive fathers, and they basically ignored the mothers that were in the list. Well, occasionally they mentioned them, but they certainly left out 
anybody who was embarrassing. And if they did list any women, they would list them because they would somehow enhance the story, that they would somehow enhance the purity of the line or the nobility of the line. Those would be the women, of course, that you would mention as you told your story. Not Jesus' story. It doesn't seem to follow the rules. It includes four women. If you were going to include women from the Old Testament in Jesus' story, who would you include? Well, you might include Sarah, Abraham's wife. We know a lot about Sarah. You might include Ruth. Maybe you don't know any stories about any other Old Testament women. You certainly wouldn't include this list. Ruth is on the list of who appears in the list that Jerry read, that the whole list in the chapter. But we also have Tamar, Rahab, the, right, the wife of Uriah, that's Bathsheba, although her name is not there. It seems that Jesus had a few Aunt Hatties in his list. And Matthew is not embarrassed to list them, is he? So today we look at the first Aunt Hattie, who is Tamar. Her story is in Genesis 38, but I will tell it to you. It's one of those stories our children are never going to read in Sunday school. If you recall, Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, and Jacob had 12 sons the 12 tribes of Israel, named after the 12 sons. Yes, this is the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat story where the 11 brothers sold the one brother, Joseph, into slavery. Well, actually, the way the story goes is that brothers wanted to kill him. They didn't want to sell him anywhere. They wanted to get rid of this kid. And it was one of the brothers, Judah, who convinced the rest of the brothers not to kill him, but to sell him instead to the slavers in Egypt. Judah saved Joseph's life, and this is the story. Tamar is the story of Judah and of his family. Judah married a Canaanite, that is a Gentile wife, and had three sons of his own. The first son, Ur, also married a Canaanite woman. That was Tamar, the one who appears in the list today. We don't really know what he did, but apparently Ur did something that was so bad that the text says that God considered him to be so wicked that God took his life, leaving Tamar a widow. In a society where a childless widow was not something that you wanted to be, she would have no way to support herself. She would be disenfranchised on the very edge of society. She needed a husband and children to make it in that world. Her only hope was an Old Testament law of Leverite marriage, that said that if a married man died without an heir, his next closest male relative, that would usually be a brother, had to marry her and bear children for, in memory of the deceased that would actually be the inheritors of the deceased brother. The corollary, however, is that the widow can't marry anybody else. She is stuck with the brothers. She can't leave the family and find somebody else to marry. She can only marry the brothers of her deceased husband. Those of you who have a husband who has a brother, <laughs> you just discovered a new thing to be thankful for, <laughs> that the Leverite marriage law is no longer in operation, and you do not become the property of your brother-in-law when your husband passes. 
However, in those days, it was a good thing. So Tamar's husband's brother has to marry her and give, so that she can bear children for, to, uh, in her husband's memory. And, he, and the children then will take care of her, too. So he has two brothers. What could go wrong? Brother number two, Onan, probably already married to another woman. He interpreted this law a bit differently than God intended it. He was very happy to share Tamar's bed, but he was not about to raise up anybody who was going to inherit in the name of his brother. So he did what he could to be pretty sure that she would not have any children from their union. He exploited the situation, and he used her in such a way that God considered it to be bad enough that it said God considered him wicked and also took his life. Son number one, down. Son number two, down. Son number three, not old enough to get married. So Tamar is stuck. The law doesn't allow her to marry anybody else. And besides, who's going to want their son to marry this woman? The fatality rate of her husband's is 100%. You'd think that people start calling her the black widow. There must be something about this woman. So when son number three was old enough to get married, her, Judah, his father, was not about to let him marry this woman. He wasn't about to lose the only son that he had left to that, and he could see where this story was going to go. So it left Tamar childless, without a husband, and, con and, um, her, and Judah telling her that she needed to just go live happily in her father's house for the rest of her life. She was not about to do that. This was not a woman who would just let people tell her where to go. Today we watch the desperate efforts for people who, need, who are trying to have a child and who find that difficult. The often very painful, uh, embarrassing, expensive measures that we have to go through to have a child. People will do almost anything. And certainly, that's the way Tamar was. She would do almost anything in order to have a child. <clears throat> Jacob and her sons had treated her like a pawn, but she was not a woman who was going to go quietly away. She was determined both to uphold the law and to also get justice that was due to her by the law. But her options were slim. So <clears throat> she disguised herself as a prostitute, waited for her father-in-law Judah to notice her, and seduced him. The child that they had, twins that they had, one of them is, one of them, I'm sorry, it did make her, her, her first husband's line survive. And one of those twins that they had became one of the great, 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 great grandfathers of Jesus. Go figure that that would happen. Buried in this genealogy, that name Tamar is just full of surprises, isn't it? I mean, the story is surprising because in the first place, God used a woman, which we don't expect him to do in those days. The woman is the instrument of God's providence to make sure that the line continues so that Messiah will be born. 
And besides, she's a Gentile woman. She's an outsider. And this strange person, the last person you would expect, served God, served his purposes to bring about what he wanted. God seemed to be in control behind the scenes of this story in ways that we certainly don't expect. He is using this completely unorthodox outsider to overcome all sorts of human obstacles and to intervene for his purposes for the Messiah to eventually be born from this heritage. By including four women in the genealogy, Matthew is shaping the story in a certain way to also set the stage for Mary because Mary is going to be providing, the, the birth to Mary is going to be another one that is surprising. It is going to be not at all what people expect. And God is going to be using that woman, Mary, in a very mysterious, unexpected way. The story is also surprising because we expect it to be full of noble ancestors. But look who God chose. God chose this horribly dysfunctional family, generations of distrust and deceit and exploitation. You and I can't choose our ancestors, but God could have chosen Jesus' ancestors, and this is who he chose. It is amazing. Matthew could have left them out. He didn't have to tell us about them. But he wants us to know that from the very start, God's work has been a lineage of grace. That Jesus is not ashamed of having sinners in his family. From his very birth, his story included and will continue to include people who are a complex mixture of saints and sinners. People who are sort of weeds and wheat, all mixed up together. People like us. In fact, he will die for us, even while we are still sinners. To accomplish his purposes in the world, God might use Judas, who sell their brother, and might use Tamars, who seduce. He doesn't necessarily select the most deserving person. God doesn't seem to be controlled by human merit. And I'm not so sure we like that. He shows his unpredictable graciousness in places that we would just never expect. So we begin this Advent with this unpredictable graciousness of God and in such an unlikely place as Tamar. During this Advent, I wonder if God could surprise us with some of his graciousness. Graciousness that we might see from God to us, to some of the people in our world, maybe even graciousness that God could show through us to the people around us. So may this Advent be a season of graciousness that God gives us the eyes to see and graciousness that he might even produce through us. And that'd be a mystery, wouldn't it? 
Let us stand and say together our affirmation of faith, which you'll find printed in the bulletin. Together. <clears throat> together. We trust in God, whom Jesus called Abba, Father. In sovereign love, God created the world good and makes everyone equally in God's image, male and female, of every race and people, to live as one community. But we rebel against God. We hide from our Creator, ignoring God's commandments. We violate the image of God in others and ourselves, accept lies as truth, exploit neighbor and nature, and threaten death to the planet entrusted to our care. We deserve God's condemnation, yet God acts with justice and mercy to redeem creation. With believers in every time and place, we rejoice that nothing in life or in death can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let us receive the morning offering.
God of grace, God of truth, you remind us this morning that we are a people who are on the move, coming from many different places, longing for a promised land, carrying promise, carrying brokenness, carrying deep longings, seeking to weave the story of our life together to make some sense of it. And we remember grandfathers and grandmothers and fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and that long heritage that reaches back to the garden, to Adam and Eve, and the awareness that we carry within us, our genetic inheritance. And in the midst of all of that, we bring ourselves to you because we know that you have invited us to come to you boldly, that you know our story, that your grace has been at work in the midst of our strengths and our weaknesses, that your grace is great enough to forgive us of our sins and indeed to empower us to forgive those who have wounded us and hurt us perhaps abandoned us, failed us in some way. And yet that story is a part of your wonderful story of grace in our lives. How remarkable, like the Apostle Paul, that we discovered that your grace is more than sufficient in our weakness. We thank you that your grace and love covers a multitude of sins. 
and gives hope and promise to us for the future. But in these busy days of Advent in which we are running from one place to another, bring to our awareness that you have been with us and that you are running with us and that nothing can separate us from your love. We are aware this morning, Lord, that our world is filled with great brokenness. People who are very confused, who do such things as in Colorado Springs over the weekend. We pray for your mercy to rest upon us as a nation and as a world. Where violence seems to be almost an everyday thing when someone goes off the track and commits acts that brutalize others. Dear God, bring us to our senses. Make us a part of a church. There's a light in the darkness. An advocate of peace in a violent, war-torn world. A church that knows how to feed the world because you have fed us the bread of life. So we bring to you this morning the expressions of our love for you. We give in so many different ways. We pray that the power of your Holy Spirit may rest upon this congregation that you will help us to fulfill the mission that you have given to us of being a lighthouse of the gospel, of being a place where all are welcome, a place of reconciliation, of new beginnings, of signs of new creation. We thank you for this precious genealogy of Jesus. It is our story because it is the human story and you are not separate from it and you have embraced it into your own identity in life. So we ask now that you will help us to glorify you in these busy days as we prepare ourselves for the coming of the Lord. Our
On your way out this morning, I invite you to take two things from each of the exits. Um, one is our Advent devotional, Unto Us a Child is Born. It is writings by Henry Nowen. And also there is a card that lists all of the things that are going on here throughout the Advent season, or at least most of the things that are going on throughout the Advent season. And you can use this to invite somebody else to come and join you at some of these events and come join you here to celebrate Advent and to celebrate Christmas. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Amen.